right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing on this nice chilly fall morning? Doesn't it feel awesome? Everybody got a crock pot of chili or soup or something going at home? We all should, right? Because nothing better than when you walk into your house and it smells like a crock pot full of chili. Or maybe that's just me. Hey, so let's, uh, I got a lot to cover. So first of all, I just want to shout out to the, to the visitors. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It is a blessing to have you come and join us. And we hope to be able to return that blessing with the fellowship of this community. But then also um, what, I, what I think is, is an exciting word from God. I think there's nothing more exciting than jumping into his word specifically and going through because there is nothing more revealing feeling. There's nothing that, that is more uplifting and encouraging than just the, the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to hold up here today. That's what we're going to celebrate, and that's what we're going to teach. So where we are is we are in a series on the book of Acts. We're going through the book of Acts. We are not going specifically verse by verse. There's just too much. It would take us a year to go through, or better, to go through it like that. What we're doing is we're hitting the highlights of the things that happen in the book of Acts. So that by the time we're done with this, now we're we're in our fourth week here, uh, we're going to go through to the beginning of December. And by the time we're finished, we will have hit the significant things that happened in the book of Acts. And and you'll have a great overview and a a feel for what happened in there and why it was documented. So uh, just to recap a little bit, the book of Acts just simply starts out with this. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he's getting ready to ascend into heaven and leave them behind. And he's trying to give them some comfort. And he says, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So the the last thing he says before he ascends is is you're going to receive power to go be my witnesses. And so the book of Acts is primarily about that act happening. It's about the disciples. They've been hanging out with Jesus. They've been learning from Jesus. They've been, they've been doing miraculous signs and wonders. They've been doing all these things, but now Jesus is gone and he's left them with instructions to go out into the world and do these things. But he doesn't leave him on his own. And that's where the life comes in in this. And this, this is where we as Christians can draw life from even a story like this. So today we're going to cover Acts 6 and 7, which is primarily about the stoning of Stephen. I know the Colorado stoning jokes are coming in right now, but this is, this is, a, bad, this is a bad thing that happens to Stephen. But how can there be life in that when we're talking about this? The life comes in this knowing that no matter what is in our path, no matter what comes our way, the good, the bad, the in-between, the things that we don't understand, if we follow the voice of the Holy Spirit, which we now have because of what Jesus Christ did for us, if we follow that voice, there is going to be great things that happen from that. There's going to be great things, far greater things than we could ever accomplish on our own. And we're going to find out here as we go through this that Stephen's ministry... Okay, many Christians have heard of Stephen. Most, I would venture to say, have heard. But if you haven't heard of him, Stephen is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has given everything to follow Jesus Christ, and his ministry lasts but days or hours at best. Okay, it's very, very, very short ministry, but it's incredibly significant. And despite the fact that we look at the ultimate end where Stephen dies of being stoned, 
The life comes in what God has done with that. God does great things through our discomfort. And that's what I want to hope to get across here today. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ is not all about being comfortable. Okay, we say, I want the blessings of God. I want the blessings that come with being a follower of Jesus. And you get those blessings. But many times those blessings don't look like what we think they should look like. That's what we have to understand. We have to understand that the blessing that we get sometimes isn't for here and now. Sometimes it's extreme discomfort and uneasiness and doing things that we're not prepared for. Sometimes things that downright hurt. But the blessing, the blessing comes in the there and then. When we're in heaven and we receive those treasures in heaven that Jesus promises us. And those treasures in heaven is knowing that we did what we were asked to do as disciples of Jesus here on earth. And so that's what we're going into. So without further ado, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to set the scene. A lot of scriptures again in this one, and I'm tempted to apologize for it, but man, it's such good stuff. So I want to encourage you to read Acts chapter 6 and 7. 6 and 7, it's a small bite-sized portion this week. You can do that. And these things will come back to life for you as I go through. They'll be familiar. So to set the scene, I don't have it on the screen. This is kind of a long scripture, but I kind of want to set the tone for what's going on here. Okay, this is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read it to you here. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, remember, at this time they're talking about the disciples in the Jerusalem church were 20,000 plus. The church, the followers of Jesus, the way as they called themselves, they were just blowing up 20,000 plus at this point, okay? Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Let me stop right there. Hellenistic Jews, it's important that you understand this. You have your native Israel-born, primarily Jerusalem-living native Hebrews, but then you have these Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic, if you remember from high school history class, is Greek, right? So the Greek Jews, these Jews came from places all over the place, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're Greek by, by heritage, but they're Greek-speaking, Okay, many of them came from Rome, many of them came from outside provinces, but this place, Jerusalem, at this point in time, this is the place to be. If you are a follower of Christ or you're curious about this thing that's blowing up in Jerusalem, this is the place to be, right? So they're coming from all over the place, and these Greek-speaking Jews are coming into the area now, and they're forming their own little enclaves, if you will, okay? So that's where we are. And the Hellenistic Jews arose this complaint against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. If you remember when I talked about a couple weeks ago, after Pentecost, one of the things that happened is that the disciples of this church that's 20,000 plus in this congregation And most of them, or many of them are doing, is that they're bringing all of their possessions. They're selling everything they own, and they're bringing it and laying it literally at the feet of the disciples, or of the apostles. And the apostles are supposed to then distribute that to those who are in need, meaning the widows, the orphans, the poor, the hungry, and then on top of that, taking care of the needs of everyone. So you've got 12 men 
doing their absolute best to administer the needs of 20,000 plus in the congregation. Okay, we've got a few hundred here in this church and, and I can barely keep up. I can't even imagine what this would be like, but that's what they're trying to do. And that's why there start to become some problems because they can't do it all themselves. And so what they do here is they get together and I'll read it to you. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples, all of them, and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, they're not belittling serving widows and serving the poor, but they're saying our, our gifts, what God has called us to do, we're better served in other areas rather than just administration. Okay, so they're choosing some people to help them with the administration of this. Verse three, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. It's an important thing to note right here. They're basically saying, we're gonna choose seven men who can then be our administrators of these tasks. And the the word, they call them tasks, right? But even then, what did they say? They need to be full of wisdom and spirit. What this tells me when I read that is that there is no task, as we would call it, that's beneath the Spirit of God. There's no task that we can do, whether it's cleaning out toilets or sweeping floors or changing light bulbs or preaching the word from the stage. None of those things are beneath God's servants. And so we need to be, no matter what we do and where we do it, we need to do it, number one, in service of the Lord, but we also need to be full of spirit and full of wisdom. We can't do it on our own. Even if it's mopping floors, we need the Spirit of God to help us with that. So that's what they say. These are the qualifications. Now, you may know, and this is a teaching for another day, this is the time when many people say in, in Acts is where they set up or, or talk about what the qualifications for the official office of deacons and elders and such is. And this is actually the moment these seven men, they consider them to be deacons and they fit that qualification. But that's another teaching for another day. But just so you know, this is where that happens, okay? And then they say, verse four, but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is where they're best serving. Verse five, the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to list, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So it lists out who all the guys are. Anybody notice a couple things about just that list of guys? Well, they're all men, okay, which back in those days, okay, back in the early church, even when it talks about the church of 20,000, it's probably just counting the guys, so that's kind of how that was. Yeah, so it's, that's no surprise. They're all Greek names. They're all, they're all Greek names, meaning that these men were chosen from the Hellenistic Jews, meaning that even back then they were probably trying to placate that group of people saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to make sure your widows and your orphans get taken care of. So to make sure that there's no more questions and no more dissension, we're going to choose these first set of deacons from among you, from among you Hellenistic Jews, so that there's no question that they're going to get well taken care of. 
Another interesting thing is that there's only two of them that have any, any uh, extra explanation as to who they were, right? The first one, Stephen, full of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, okay? So it's kind of setting him apart a little bit more. And then the last one, Nicholas, a proselyte, which means just a convert from Antioch. Why do you think, this is not deep theology, but why do you think it talks about Nicholas being from Antioch? Well, who else is from Antioch? Luke is from Antioch. Luke wrote Acts. So there's a good chance that the writer of Acts is like, hey, I know that guy. He grew up in Antioch. He's from Antioch where I am. It's not deep theology, but sometimes you look at things like, why did he single him out? And there are people who devote a lot of attention and study to trying to figure those things out. I just think he was familiar with Nicholas because he was from the same region. But then it goes on. It says, uh, and they brought, and, the, and these men, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. This is important, this last part of, the, of verse 7. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So at this point, not only is your church 20,000 and blowing up, but now we've got Jewish priests who are becoming obedient to the faith. This is a problem for the Jewish leadership. Like not only is this blowing up against in, in the Gentiles and, and the Jews from the fringes, but our own priests are now converting. This is a problem and it's a real source of irritation for them. So we need to keep that in mind when we start doing this. Now, we get into talking about Stephen. Specifically, Stephen was special. Stephen was, was very different. Now, he was chosen to be a deacon, somebody who is an administer, uh, administrator of those things, but he had so much more going for him. And we see that play out in this way. And the only things we know about Stephen, really a little bit of history, he died about, in about year 36. He was the first Christian martyr. He was the first person martyred uh, for their belief as, as a professed Christian. But he had special gifts. He had special gifts as an evangelist. And we hear, if you read the rest of Acts, it's the only time we know about Stephen. The only things we know about Stephen really come from the book of Acts itself. But here are things that it says in Scripture in describing who Stephen was. Listen to this. Stephen was full of faith, full of grace, full of power, full of light, full of scripture, full of wisdom, full of courage, full of love, and full of the spirit. That's quite a guy. That's an amazing man to only have a ministry that is but a blip in time. But so much was accomplished through that, and we're going to go into that. Let's get to our first actual verse up here, Acts 6, 8 through 10. Now, for those of you who haven't heard, I typically study out of the NASB, which is the New American Standard. It's just the one that I like to study from, but there are so many good translations out here. Uh, so yours may read a little bit differently. But here we go. And Stephen, full of grace and power, there's more descriptions of this man, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So he's much more than just going out and, and feeding the widows. He's doing all kinds of things out there, and he's gathering some attention. 
But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia, or Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Let's go back to that previous screen if we could. Tell you a couple of things about this. The synagogue of the freedmen. If you think about this, synagogues were all over the place just as they are today. But a synagogue was essentially established to be a a gathering place, a meeting place, a learning and teaching place for Jews who couldn't make it to the temple, who maybe lived in smaller towns or outskirts. And so there began to be synagogues established all over the place. Think of them as um, community college as compared to the university of the temple, okay? The same kind of learning is going on. They're talking about the same sorts of things. But here's what happens in these miscellaneous synagogues, this one being the synagogue of the freedmen specifically that they talk about. They develop kind of their own flavor, if you will. Their own theology in some sort of ways. The synagogue of the freedmen was actually made up of former slaves who were released from Rome when Emperor Tiberius said, we're going to kick all the, all the Jews out of Rome. And so they, many of them, at least the, for, the forming group of the synagogue of the freedmen, they were former slaves. And so they came from this mindset of, we have to work for everything that we get. So they have a little bit of a different mindset than some of the newer converts or some of the Jews who maybe grew up in a little bit more privilege, so to speak. So they have a slightly different theology. And that's just important to know because we see that all the time where different synagogues and different sects and different groups clash with one another. Even though they're all Jews, they're not one homogenous group in what they believe, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Who can think of another place in scripture where Cyrenians are important or prominent? Simon the Cyrenian. Simon the Cyrenian, if you remember, he's the one who, as Jesus was traveling along the Via Dolorosa carrying his cross, Simon the Cyrenian is actually one who stopped to help him. And we learn the only real Cyrenians we learn about, other than in general this group, is Simon and his sons. But from history, we can deduce, and it doesn't say this in Scripture, but that Simon and his sons were part of this group of the synagogue of the freedmen, okay? Even though they were from a different region. And some from Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia, by the way, is a province of Rome of which the capital is a place called Tarsus. Who else is from Tarsus? Saul is from Tarsus. Saul was probably a group, a part of this group as well. So some fairly prominent people. They rose up and they argued with Stephen. Why are they arguing with Stephen? Remember, I tell you, Stephen is, he's a disciple of Jesus and he is preaching Jesus and him resurrected and he's preaching the life that comes and the good news that comes from Jesus Christ. But he's also at his roots, a Jew. He's not trying to completely upset their way of life. He's just trying to tell them, hey, what we've been waiting for is here. He's trying to get that point across to him, but they're arguing. What's the number one point that they're actually arguing here? Probably the difference in theology between what Stephen is preaching and what they believe 
is that Jesus is the Messiah. So we can deduce just the fact that Stephen is a, is a hardcore, rabid, you might say, disciple of Jesus Christ. He's probably telling the synagogue of the freedmen and these men, he's saying, hey, Jesus Christ is here. And they're saying, no, nah, that's, that's not what we believe. But the next, the next, uh, the last verse, verse 10, if we could just flip forward one, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, just one of those miraculous times where the spirit is speaking through Stephen so powerfully that they've got nothing. These are learned men that he's talking to. Stephen's nothing special other than the gifts of the spirit that he's been given, which make him special. But they've got to be baffled, like we've got nothing to counter what this man is saying. But we do know that he's being a pain in our rear. We've got to do something about this. So what they do is this. We find this, Acts 6, 11 to 14. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Literally drug him away. They put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place, destroy the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. That is a serious charge. That's blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple. Now we have a serious problem because it's one thing just to be a pain in somebody's rear, but blasphemy against the temple and against God and against Moses is actually written down in Leviticus as one of those crimes that's punishable by death. So they've got him here. Now they've brought forth false witnesses. But by saying these are the things we saw him do, they know what that means. Now this is serious enough to where we can drag him in. Not before a group of Pharisees or Sadducees where we'll slap him on the wrist and we'll yell at him and we'll bully him and we'll try and get him to stop. But before the actual Sanhedrin, which has legal authority to do these things. The Sanhedrin is like the Jewish Supreme Court, right? They've got authority to actually take care of this. And they've got more than one witness The other thing that it says in Leviticus is it outlines the fact that when you have an accuser, there needs to be more than one. It says there needs to be two or more accusers. So they have two or more accusers accusing him of the things that are punishable by death, and they drag him right before the Sanhedrin. Let's talk about blasphemy for a minute. Why is blasphemy so important? We hear people throw out the word blasphemy a lot. I hear it a lot. Like, who's going to win the game tomorrow night? Kansas City? Blasphemy! The Broncos are going to take it. We throw it out kind of lightly like that, right? We do. Nobody uses blasphemy, or rarely does anybody anymore use it in its serious biblical context. But blasphemy was punishable by stoning. By stoning, stoning to death, to be specific. Why was that such a big deal? Here's why. We don't really understand what blasphemy means. Let me explain to you what biblical blasphemy is. First of all, two scriptures that talk about this. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The next one says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him. Some very serious Old Testament stuff, right? Wrong. That's New Testament. That is New Testament grace of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. Supposed to be the kinder, gentler Testament, right? Blasphemy is not okay. And it's very clear to say that. The first scripture is Mark 3.29. The next one, Luke 12.10, for those of you who want to write it down. But here are two definitions of what blasphemy really is and why it is such a big deal. Blasphemy is not those of you who smash your thumb with a hammer and say, okay, that's not blasphemy. Saying, I don't know if there is a God because I haven't seen him work in my life and frankly, I'm tired of chasing him. If he's real, he's, he, I got nothing for him. That's not necessarily blasphemy either. Let me explain to you what blasphemy is. Here's two definitions. One is by John Piper. He's a theologian that I, that I really like. He says this, Blasphemy is a definite act showing a state of sin. And that state is a willful, determined opposition to the Holy Spirit. And this is shown by its fruit, which is blasphemy. It's a willful, determined opposition. And it's a state of that, not a momentary lapse. It's a state of that. I paraphrased it like this from the different research I did. Blasphemy is the willful, ongoing, and unrepentant rejection of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is important, I think, despite the evidence being available to us. You know the power of the Holy Spirit. You have seen it. You've been a follower of Jesus, so you have the Holy Spirit testifying to you what is right or wrong, and you willfully reject it. That's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is not a moment, a word said in weakness. Okay? Said in a moment of hurt and pain and anguish. It is a willful and ongoing rejection of the Holy Spirit. And our God is a God of choices. He says, hey, if you, if you know what the truth is and you choose to reject it, okay, that's your choice. That's what blasphemy is, and that's why I believe that it's so important. This is where we are, and this is what Stephen is accused of. Stephen knows, given the charges against him, he knows exactly what is coming. He knows what the penalty is, at least, for what he's accused of. And so what's his response? Being faced, he's drugged before the Sanhedrin, he's dragged off the street by this mob. We can assume it was, it was a fairly angry mob who's dragging him in, and he's before the Supreme Court, he's got these charges against him, and what's his response? His response is supernatural peace. Here's the scripture that talks about that. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. How is it possible that your face would be like the face of an angel? Now. I've never seen an angel face to face, but I'm picturing calm and peace and confidence. 
and knowing that you are a servant of the Lord. And no matter what comes your way, you've already got victory over it. That kind of confidence. This is what Stephen is, is exhibiting right here. That phrase, fixing their gaze, some translations use the word transfixed. So if you're transfixed, you're kind of like, okay, picture your teenager watching TV. <laughs> okay, your eyes glaze a little bit over, your mouth's probably hanging open. Sorry, teenagers. Not all of you are like that. Just the ones I've ever seen. <laughs> this is where they are. Next verse. So here's what happens. They're charging him with these things and the high priest looks at Stephen and he says, are these things so? Very simple statement, but what happens as a result of this? Now at times, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they may seem like a undisciplined mob with no rules and doing whatever they want, but in fact, In fact, the Sanhedrin is the supreme court. Their rules of procedure, the laws, the things that they do were written down and given to them, most of them, in Mosaic law. Okay, so they've been doing things this certain way. Now, some of them, they have come up with their own parameters for sure, but there are very strict rules. When the high priest looks at Stephen and says, are these things so, what does he do? He gives Stephen the floor. Now Stephen has the chance to refute what they're saying. Stephen has the floor. And here's what he says. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Here's what's interesting about that. He starts right out. He's not saying, listen, you idiots. I'm so much smarter than you. And if you just listen to me, we'll all be okay. That's not what he says. He starts out by laying common ground. Listen, my brothers, my fathers, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. I'm one of you. I'm not an outsider. I'm not somebody trying to wreak havoc in our way of life. I'm one of you, and I'm trying to share a revelation. This is where he starts. So he's laying that common ground to try and just get them to see that his heart's in the right places. But it's hard. It's a hard sell. So for the next section, this is Acts, I'm not going to put it up on there, but Acts 7, 3 through 34, Stephen basically goes on and he preaches a concise history of the patriarchs. Okay, all the way, he goes all the way back to Genesis and he's preaching through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he goes through Moses and the Exodus. And he, he goes on and he's basically preaching this whole sermon to them. And in fact, it's the longest single sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts at all. And Stephen preaches this. And he does this to establish, number one, that he knows, he knows Scripture. He knows the history but that also he's honoring it. He's one of them. I am not an anarchist. I'm just trying to get you to understand. I know scripture and verse as well as you do. But he just hears it differently because he has the Holy Spirit. Then he gets down to this, Acts 7.37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's trying to remind them like, hey, 
remember, this shouldn't be a giant shock to you because Moses told you all the way back then that God was going to raise up a prophet from among you. So I don't know if they were expecting the clouds to open up and, and a Messiah to come down on a flaming chariot with winged horses. I don't know what they were looking for. But Stephen is reminding them, look, Moses told you it was just going to be a prophet from among you. Just going to look like a regular person. You shouldn't be surprised at this. He's trying to get the light bulb to come on about the coming Messiah that's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And they would have known this. They're just not connecting the dots. He's trying to get him to connect the dots. That's where we are. The next scripture here, Acts 7.39. He starts to get a little bit pointed now. And he says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, meaning to Moses, but repudiated him in their, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They didn't literally turn back. Remember, this is during the Exodus. They got tired. Okay, we're freed from slavery. We're out on our own. We're going to this promised land. But I'm tired of looking. I'm tired of trudging through the desert and moving our camp. It was so much better when we were under slavery back in Egypt. That's what they're, try- that's what they're saying to him at this point. And he's just reminding them. Now look, I, I know you get tired of waiting. We all get tired of waiting, but I'm here to tell you, we don't have to wait anymore. Again, just trying to hammer this point home. And they would have remembered that, and it would have struck a chord in some of them. Some of them were probably even kind of given that little self-righteous nod like, yeah, our, our fathers went back or wanted to go back, but but we are smarter than that now. We, we've got the benefit of hindsight and we've read the scriptures and we know we wouldn't have done that. How many times do we read those things and go, yeah, they were so foolish. I would never have done that. There are probably some in the Sanhedrin that are kind of starting to nod like, yeah, I, I would never have done that. I would have been following what God had. The next section of verses, I don't have it up there, but 44 to 50, verse, chapter 7, 44 to 50 Stephen is basically going on. He's recounting the history of the temple. He's really establishing that I know the history of the temple. I understand the importance and the significance and the, and the sacred value of the temple. I get that. He's doing this intentionally to counter the charge of blasphemy against the temple. But then he says this to him. This is Acts 749. Now remember, in, in, in my Bible, in the NASB, whenever you see things that's all caps like this, this isn't Stephen yelling, okay? <laughs> the all caps recounts Old Testament Scripture, meaning it was taken, that, that was directly quoted from Old Testament Scripture. In this case, it's Isaiah, I believe it's 66. This is the Lord Himself speaking, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? What he's saying there is the temple is great, but the whole earth is my footstool. I can't be contained to merely a temple. I'm bigger than that. What could you possibly build that would contain me? And yet the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were doing everything they could to keep this nice tidy box that God was in. 
And anything that threatened to open up that box or make it bigger than they wanted it to be was a threat to them. That's where we are. So Stephen is reminding them of this, that God himself said he couldn't be contained to the temple. Why are you willing to stone someone to death because they say something against the temple, which God himself says he's far greater than? This is why he's doing this. He's reminding of this. He's getting them to understand and he's calling this common ground of Scripture to them. But you picture them kind of getting in a spot where some of them are like, maybe he's not that bad. Maybe, maybe he's, okay, maybe he's, the things that we've heard aren't true. Maybe he's better than that. And you could see maybe some of them starting to soften their countenance a little bit. Again, Scripture doesn't say that. I'm imagining being there. But then he turns around. He turns around and the very next thing he says is this. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, referring back to the old covenant of God. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Bam. If he had a mic, he would have dropped it right then. (laughs) Can you imagine the response when he points at them? He's probably tied up. He's somehow restrained, standing ahead of them. He is, they're sitting in the council and they're looking down at this man and he looks up at that and he says, you. Who? That's bold. We see their response here, Acts 7.54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. Cut to the quick. You ever been cut to the quick? It hurts. It hurts. Why does it hurt, though? In context, not of, not of cutting your fingernail, which is kind of the, the image that we get here. When somebody says something to you that cuts you to the quick, why does it hurt? Because it's true. If I looked at you and said, hey, you parked across three parking spaces and people couldn't get in out there, and you're like, no, I didn't. I'm fine. I'm right in the middle. That doesn't, you might go, why would you say that to me? It might even hurt that I would accuse you of that, but it's not going to cut you to the quick because there's no truth to it and you know it. They knew there was truth to what he was saying, his accusations. And so they began gnashing their teeth. Gnashing their teeth is just a biblical, or it refers, you know, some of it says they would tear at their robes. All just a big demonstration of how anguished we are at what you're saying. This is what they're doing right now. So you would think Stephen being accused, knowing what his, the potential penalty was, and that this court had the authority to do that, to, to uh, enforce that penalty, this would have been a good time maybe for him to back off just a little bit. You think? What does he do though? Does he back off? But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently in heaven into heaven and saw the glory of God. 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why is that significant? Not besides the obvious that Stephen is looking up and he's seeing the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Who else in the Old Testament anyway that, that the, the court would have been familiar with said almost exactly the same thing? Several prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they said the same thing. That would have drove them nuts. You're saying you're just like Ezekiel and Isaiah looking up and seeing God which indicates approval when they, release, when they reveal themselves to you. That is so much more than they could possibly take. They, they have hit their limit. They can't handle this anymore. And Stephen knew what was coming next. Stephen knew what was coming next, Acts 7.57. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. What did they do? They drove him from the city, Scripture says, and began stoning him. Does anybody know what a biblical stoning looks like? We've seen some pictures. Let me show you a picture right here. Okay, this is kind of, a, of an image of what that might have looked like. You see Stephen on his knees, big guy getting ready to hit him with a rock. You see the heavens with the Father and Jesus seated at his right hand. You see angels. You see all those things that are documented. Let me show you something. Let me give you a little example. Give you an example. See that big giant stone that that guy's got over his, here, pass a couple of those down. The big, the, the guy's got over his, his head there. That's not what it looked like. What it looked like when people were stoned is that they did it with little stones this big. Little stones, maybe no bigger, Guys got them no bigger than the size of a tangerine. Sorry if I missed you. Pass them down. I want everybody to kind of feel these, see these. Smaller stones designed intentionally to not kill you with the first one. Yes, here. They're designed to inflict pain. For 20 minutes to two hours was the typical, typical time frame. 20 minutes to two hours of being pelted with these rocks. And you know when it would come? Sorry, I'm missing, I'm missing all kinds of people here. If I missed you, you know what a rock looks like, right? <laughs> these rocks were no bigger than the size of a tangerine. And they were designed to spread out the pain. And the only time that it would actually come to this, the big giant rock, the the, the killing blow would be as if they just got tired of waiting. You're just hanging on too long. So we're going to pick up this big rock and we're going to finish you off because we're tired of, tired of hearing you scream or whatever it is. But biblical law delineated exactly how this happened. First of all, the accusers. The accusers, two or more, would be the ones to throw the first stone. So they would do that. Next would be the chief judge or the chief priest would throw the next stone. After that, everyone would join in. Everyone. I want you to look at that rock in your hand. Think how many times you would have to hit somebody, let's say me, 
have to hit somebody with that rock before they would die. And could you do it? I couldn't do it to a, to a, a puppy or a, a rabbit or a bird. I couldn't do it to any of those things, much less a, a human being. But this is where these people were. They were holding on so tightly to their religion of God in a box that is defined by what the Old Testament word says. We're holding on to that so tight that we're willing to kill you in a horrible way as an example to others who would threaten that box. That's where these, are, these guys are. You can take that image down. That's, that's a, terrible, it's a terrible way to die. But Stephen would have known. Stephen would have known. And by the way, standing at the fringes of that crowd was a young man from Tarsus named Saul, who at this point was merely holding the coats of those who were throwing the rocks. But the word says he was nodding in approval of what was happening. Next week, we talk about the rise of Saul and his persecution of the church. That's what we're talking about next week. But for now, Acts 7, 59, 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. This just raises so many questions for people. Number one of which is probably Stephen was a faithful servant, a gifted disciple of Christ. How could this happen to him? How could a loving God let this horrible thing happen to one of his most devoted servants? How could that happen? People ask that question all the time. Here's what we need to understand, though, is when God uses us for his purposes, they are far greater than ours. And what happened out of Stephen's stoning? The church began to spread. See, at this point, the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples. They had been given the commission by Jesus to go do this, go out into the nations and spread the gospel throughout the nations. But most of them were still hanging out in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was comfortable. They had their thing going. Their church was growing. They were becoming more and more influential there, but they weren't going out and doing what Jesus said to do. And through this, Scripture records the disciples scattered. It took this. It took the faithfulness of Stephen, knowing that he was in God's will, and that allowed him to walk into whatever was coming his way, and not just timidly walk into it with his head hung down, but to boldly and forcefully, I know I'm in God's will. And whatever happens to me now is because our Lord has willed it. And that's the kind of assurance you can have when you have the Holy Spirit and you are following his will. That's where the life comes in. That no matter what comes your way as you're walking on this earth, the Holy Spirit has already given you everything that you need to come against it. And not only to come against it, but to conquer it in supernatural ways like Stephen did. So you say, how can being stoned to death be conquering anything? That's because in our minds, when we're followers of the Lord Jesus and we want that blessing that he offers, that blessing looks comfortable and it looks cushy and it looks nice and it looks pleasant and that's what we want. 
That's not what being a follower of Christ always looks like. See, if you're in God's will, it might be uncomfortable. It might hurt. It might be lonely. It might sometimes feel completely pointless. And you might have no idea why you're going through these things. But if we have the assurance that we are in God's will because we have sought the Holy Spirit and we know that we're in God's will, then we also have the blessing. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and and come on up. So what's the good news in a situation like this? How do you take something that's so horrible, you look at that rock in your hand and you see the image of Stephen and you see the demise that he met and yeah, okay, something... You know, the disciples were, were dispersed because of this, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten out of the nest and gone to do that if it weren't for this. And I think that's incredibly significant. But the good news is this. And this is promised to us by Jesus Christ himself as he taught during the Beatitudes. This is, this is part from Luke. It's also in Matthew. But this is part from Luke, chapter 6, 22-23. Blessed are you, when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. Your reward is great in heaven. And that's what I want to leave you with. If you follow the Lord's will, meaning you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you receive the Holy Spirit when you give your heart to Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. You seek the Holy Spirit and his guidance in your life and you're obedient to that guidance. That's when the miraculous happens. That's when you can go through any storm, any trial, any persecution, anything that comes your way, good and bad, and have supernatural peace that allows you to have the face of an angel in the face of that like Stephen did. Church, that's what I want. I want that supernatural peace that comes from knowing that every step, every step I take is in the Lord's will. I don't ever want to be a moment outside of knowing in my heart that I'm in his will. And we have that ability simply by seeking him. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's the good news today. So if you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus, first of all, we need to get you to have that knowledge of who he is. And he wants to reveal himself to you right now. So you may know who who he is. You may know of him, but do you really know him in your heart? So if you're sitting here and you have not accepted Jesus into your heart, scripture just says it's just as easy as confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that he gave himself for you and then was raised from the dead. It's that simple to accept that. And by that, we receive the Holy Spirit that allows all these other miraculous things to happen through us. The miracle is that God wants to use us to accomplish his will. And we get to be a part of that. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for who you are and your greatness and your mercy. And the fact that you sent your son, Jesus to die for us, not just to pay for our sins and to give us eternal life through the salvation in Him, which, God, we are so thankful for that. 
But Lord, we also receive the Holy Spirit so that we can do your will. And there's no greater blessing in our lives on this earth than to know that we are doing your will, Father. So Lord, we just pray now that you would speak to us in a greater and more loud, more loud and clear that our human minds can't mess up and can't misunderstand. Speak to us in a way that we know we're in your will. Father, I pray for everyone hearing my voice right now that there would never be a day, never be a moment of our lives where we weren't intimately aware of your voice guiding us, encouraging us, loving us, telling who we are to you. Father, we want that life here on earth until we get the life that you offer then and there. Father, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So folks, as we move into communion, we've got at the crosses, if you're new here, at the crosses we have juice and bread and crackers. You can just dip the bread and crackers in there and serve yourself if you like. Up front here, my wife and I would be serving you. We have wine and bread and gluten-free crackers. We would serve you up there. Let's do this though. Look at that rock. Look at those rocks. Feel that. Know the pain that those before us have gone through. And that's nothing compared to what Jesus went through for you. That's the kind of thankful heart we should have as we celebrate communion. So listen to the song the worship team's going to play on. When you are ready, feel free to move around and take communion. And after that, stay with us for as long as you like and just enjoy some worship. But guys, when you're done, just go and have an absolutely blessed day. Thanks.
We're going to sing one more. I invite you to stay with us.
Today, hope to see you at the corn maze if you're going to join us there.